Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Joining me today is someone who really kind of encapsulates all of those categories, uh, is a gentleman by the name of Alex Banayan. And Alex has an incredible, incredible story with a, a book that just came out called The Third Door. Uh, but here's just a little snippet to understand Alex's journey because he's he's gone gone and run the gamut. So the day before his freshman year final exams, Alex decides that he's going to try and hack the prices right. So he does this. He hacks the prices right. He wins a sailboat. Sailboat. He sells it and he uses the prize money to fund his quest to learn from the world's most successful people. So since then, he has been named to Forbes 30 under 30 list, uh, Business Insider's Most Powerful People Under 30. He's contributed to Fast Company, The Washington Post, Entrepreneur, TechCrunch, and has been featured in major media, including Fortune, Forbes, Business Week, Billboard, Bloomberg, TV, CNBC, like you name it. He has done it. And the reason why he's been featured on many, many, many of those platforms is because of the journey that he's gone on. And he has done some remarkable interviews, one-on-one interviews with the likes of Bill Gates, Maya Angelou, Steve Wozniak, Jane Goodall, Larry King, Jessica Alba, Pitbull, Tim Ferriss, Quincy Jones, and many, many more, just to name a few. <laughs> so... In this interview, Alex and I are going to dive into a few different areas and a few different topics. One of the big ones that we talk about is actually the the life lessons from some of these really successful people. And Alex distills all of it into this concept that we talk about right at the gates called the third door. And the the concept is really that that most people take two different doors in life, two different paths in life, and that there is always a third door. And Alex uses his own personal journey of how he actually got and landed some of these interviews with some of these people to explain the, the third door concept. So he, you know, he did some outrageous things to land interviews with Jessica Alba and Steven Spielberg and Pitbull and Tim Ferriss. And he shares some of those stories, but most of it is around some of the wisdom that he that he learned throughout this journey and how it is applicable to your life, how it's applicable to your business, how it's applicable to your relationship and to you developing and deepening your sense of purpose in life. So this is an incredible interview. It's a little bit longer than some of the normal interviews that that I do. Um, but I thought that the I felt the conversation really warranted the longer interview because it it really has so much depth. So I hope you enjoy this. Don't forget to man it forward and share this podcast episode with with just one person. Uh, huge huge shout out to David K for sharing the podcast recently. Uh, thank you so much, brother. I appreciate you. Uh, don't forget to tag me on social media when you share the podcast because I would love to give you a shout out either through here or through social media. So without any further delay, please welcome Mr. Alex Banayan. Thank you for having me, Matt. Let's dive in. Let's let's dive in. So tell us, this is a question that I always ask all of our guests and uh, the listeners really love this question because it gives them insight into you. But tell us a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. Hmm. 
I think I would have to go back about seven years when I was 18 years old, a freshman in college, and I was spending every day lying on my dorm room bed, staring up at the ceiling. And I don't know if you've gone through the what I want to do with my life crisis, but you know, it's that thing that, you know, just hits you to the point where it's all you think about, you know, before you go to bed, it's what you think about in the shower and sort of this fog that follows you around wherever you go. And to understand why I'm going through it, you have to understand that I'm the son of Jewish immigrants, which pretty much means I came out of the womb. My mom cradled me in her arms and then she stamped MD on my ass and sent me on my way. <laughs> and you think it's funny, but in you know third grade, I wore scrubs to school for Halloween and thought I was cool. You know, I was that kid. So, you know, I checked the boxes in high school. I took all biology classes, went to pre-med summer camps, studied for the SATs. And by the time I got to college, I was the pre-med of pre-meds. But I remember really vividly lying on my dorm room bed, looking over at this towering stack of biology books, feeling like they were sucking the life out of me. And at first I assumed I was just being lazy, but eventually I began to wonder, maybe I'm not on my path. Maybe I'm on a path somebody placed me on and I'm just rolling down. So now, not only do I not know what I want to do with my life, I start wondering how all these people who I looked up to, how did they do it? You know, how did Bill Gates sell his first piece of software out of his dorm room when nobody knew his name? How did Spielberg become the youngest director in Hollywood history when he was rejected from film school? You know, these are things they don't normally teach you. So I just assumed there had to be a book out there with the answer. So, you know, I go on Amazon, I'm in the library, just ripping through biographies and business books and self-help books. But eventually I was left empty-handed. And that's when my naive 18-year-old thinking kicked in. And I thought, well, if no one's written the book I'm dreaming of reading, why not write it myself? You know, I thought it'd be super simple. I thought I would just call up Bill Gates, interview him, interview everybody else, and I'd be done by the end of summer. That, I assumed, would be the easy part. The hard part I figured was getting the money to fund the journey. You know, I was buried in tuition payments. I was all out of bar mitzvah cash. So there had to be a way to make some quick money. So two nights before finals, freshman year, I'm in the library doing what everyone's doing in the library right before finals. I'm on Facebook. <laughs> and I see someone posting, offering free tickets to the crisis right. And my first thought was, what if I go on the show and win some money to fund this dream? Which is kind of funny because it sounds like a dream. <laughs> it, that, that idea almost sounds like a dream, right? It's like, oh, I'll just go on The Price is Right and win a bunch of money. Well, it was completely <laughs> preposterous. And I had a problem. You know, not only did I have finals in two days, I'd never seen a full episode of the show before. I've, of course, seen bits and pieces oh, as a kid growing up. That was like my high school summer jam. Right. Grade 11. Exactly. And it's like, it's that show you watch when there's like nothing else on TV. Yeah, so I've, I've seen bits and pieces. I'd never seen a full episode. And I told myself, you know, this is a stupid idea. Don't think about it. Study for finals. But I don't know if you've had one of those ideas that it just, as much as you try to push it out of your head, it just keeps clawing itself back. So I remember sitting at this corner, small wooden table in the corner of the library, taking out my spiral notebook and making the best and worst case scenarios to prove to myself it was a bad idea. And it was, you know, like worst case scenarios. 
fail finals, get kicked out of pre-med, lose financial aid, mom stops talking to me, no, mom kills me. You know, there's 20 cons. And the only pro was maybe, maybe win enough money to fund this dream. And it was almost as if somebody had tied a rope around my gut and was slowly pulling in a direction. So that night I decided to do the logical thing and pull an all-nighter to study. But I didn't study for finals. I studied how to hack the prices right. And I went on the show the next day and executed this ridiculous strategy. And I ended up winning the whole showcase showdown, winning a sailboat, selling the sailboat. And that's how I funded the book. And it's been this, you know, unbelievable journey over the past seven years. It took two years to track down Bill Gates, three years to track down Lady Gaga. And really, it's been surprising even to me that when I had set out to write the book, no part of me was looking for that, you know, one key to success. You know, we've all seen those TED Talks or business books, and I normally just roll my eyes. But what ended up happening, and I'm sure you've probably noticed similar things with the podcast of at a certain point after, you know, years of interviewing, you start noticing these almost common melodies to every conversation. And what I realized that every single person I talked to, it didn't matter where they grew up or what they did. It doesn't matter if it was, you know, Warren Buffett who grew up in Omaha or, you know, Maya Angelou who grew up in Sam's Arkansas. Every single person that I spoke to treats life and business and success the exact same way. And the analogy that came to me is that it's sort of like getting into a nightclub. There's always three ways in. There's the first door, the main entrance where the line curves around the block, where 99% of people wait around hoping to get in. And then there's the second door, the VIP entrance, where the billionaires and celebrities slip through. And for some reason, school and society have this way of making us feel like those are the only two ways in. You're either born into it, or you wait your turn like everybody else. But what I've learned is that there's always, always the third door. And it's the entrance where you have to jump out of line, run down the alley, bang on the door a hundred times, crack open the window, go through the kitchen. There's always a way. And it doesn't matter if that's how Gates sold his first piece of software or how Lady Gaga got her first record deal. They all took the third door. So that's not only the thesis of the book and the title of the book. That's really the energy I'm trying to inject into the readers. Very cool. I like that. I like that. So I, I want to dive into, definitely dive into this concept because I think it's so important. And, and when I, you know, as Steve Jobs says, when, when I connect the dots backwards, I can see how many times going through the third door has worked in my life. Not, not just in relationships, not just in entrepreneurship, but in, you know, from my career as a opera singer to working at Apple to like every, everything that I did. Uh, it really is by going through that door, that other route that most people yeah. don't want, like they don't dare go down because it seems so absurd, right? It's just and like, it's why would scary you do that? And it's harder, you know? Yeah. And it's a risk, of right? It's a risk. And I think that there's a certain level of uncertainty. And I, and I do want to touch on the uncertainty principle or uncertainty factor in that. So, but I want to go back to to how did you hack the prices right as somebody who used to watch this like how did you how did you win that cuz i'm sure that there's so many of our listeners that that you know used to watch the prices right and think i wonder if i can win that like i used to always think that like i wonder if i can win if i could win this show 
And so was there a method to your madness? Like, did you, how did you go about, how did you go about that? You know, being somebody that didn't necessarily watch the show religiously, because I think it's different from the people that like watch Jeopardy every night for like, you know, two decades to learn all that. Right. And then they, and then they try and go on the show and there's this certain like methodology there. How did you get in there and, and actually produce the result that you did? So there's the 30 minute answer and the one minute answer. <laughs> so I'll, I'll turn it over to you about which one you want. Yeah. Maybe, maybe the no, one minute answer. So the, the one minute answer is that, you know, the price is right when you're watching it on TV, it sort of looks like a lottery, you know, Alex, come on down as if they pulled your name out of a hat. But what I learned during my all nighter of research is that like all things in life, there's a system to it. And there's a producer who interviews every single person in the audience before the show begins. And on top of that, there's an undercover producer planted in the audience who then confirm or denies the original producer selection. So I realized, okay, there's 300 people in the audience. Eight get called down to be contestants. And out of those eight, one wins. So the real probability issue isn't the one out of eight. One out of eight isn't the worst odds, but being the eight out of 300, that's the hard part. And that's what I had figured out how, to, how it worked. So interesting. So how did, so was it a, almost like a game of getting yourself to stand out in such a way that you would get picked? Because it's, it, what I see is, as an interesting correlation is hacking that system is almost in, in itself finding the third door. Like being the eight out of the 300 is, is almost in itself a, a means of, of like proving what the book, the book is all about. So how did you go about like drawing attention to yourself? Did you do like the big foam finger and, you know, the really outrageous behavior or like, how did you bring attention to yourself in such a way that, that you got chosen? So when I was like, if we just like focus on the part where I was with the first producer, you know, you're in line and this guy has a method to it, you know? And by the way, when I got there and I was waiting in line, the second I saw him, I knew that was my guy. I knew that was Stan. I knew where he grew up. I knew where he went to school. I pretty much knew what he ate for breakfast that morning because I had researched him for hours the night before. And I knew there was a method, you know, to his moves. He walks down the line. He goes, what's your name? Where are you from? What do you do? What's your name? Where are you from? What do you do? And if he likes you, he'll ask you another question. And if he really likes you, He'll turn around to his assistant who's sitting about 10 feet behind him. He'll wink and his assistant will write your name down on his clipboard. So if the price is right as a nightclub, Stan is the bouncer. If you're not on his list, you're out. So it's finally my turn. And he's like, what's your name? Where are you from? What do you do? And I'm like, hey, I'm Alex. I'm 18. I'm a freshman in college. I'm studying pre-med. And he goes, oh, pre-med, you must spend a lot of time studying. How do you have time to watch the price is right? And I go, oh, is that where I am? Like it, the joke just dies, you know, no laughter. It's so awkward. And I see his eyes starting to wander and I'm like, all right, I need to do something. And I had read in one of those business books I had read during my life crisis that human contact speeds up a relationship. So I had an idea. I had to touch Stan. <laughs> so I'm like, Stan, come over here. I want to make a handshake with you. And he's like, no, no, it's okay. I'm like, come on. So he comes over very reluctantly. You know, I teach him how to pound it and blow it up. And he laughs. And I'm like, you know, joking around with him. And he's like, all right, kid, good luck. And he walks away. Doesn't turn around to his assistant. 
She doesn't write anything down on the clipboard. And just like that, it's over. And this is one of those moments where you can see your entire dream right in front of you walking away. Almost as if, you know, slipping through your fingers like sick. And the worst part about it is you know you didn't even get a chance to really prove yourself. So I don't know what got into me, but I felt this rumbling in the pit of my stomach. And I just started yelling at the top of my lungs. Stan! You know, the whole audience shoots their heads around. I'm like, Stan, come back. And he like runs over thinking I'm having like a seizure. He's like, are you okay? Are you okay? What's going on? And now I have no idea what I'm going to (laughs) say. And, you know, he's looking at me. I'm looking at him. And you can, like, feel the tension. And I just look at him. And, you know, he's typical Hollywood, red turtleneck. No, you know, black turtleneck, red scarf. And, you know, it's 70 degrees outside. And I just, like, look at him. And I'm like, your scarf. And now I really don't know what I'm going to say next. And I just look at him with all the seriousness I can. And I'm just like. Stan, I'm an avid scarf collector. I have 362 pairs in my dorm room and I'm missing that one. Where did you get it? And he starts cracking up because he finally realizes, I think, what I was trying to do. (laughs) And he was laughing more at why I was doing it. And he like gives me his scarf. He's like, look, you need this more than I do. And I'm, you know, no, we joke around a bit more. He turns around and his assistant makes a mark on the <laughs> oh, and man. the rest of the show unraveled in like a similarly hilarious way. So my hacking, the price is right, was less Albert Einstein hacking and more Forrest Gump. But nonetheless, it worked out really well. Uh I love that. The Forrest Gump hack. Is that is that in the book, the Forrest Gump hack? Because I feel like not that sentence literally, but that <laughs> energy, pretty much the whole book is, you know, if Forrest Gump wanted to write Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. <laughs> that would be the third door. <laughs> that is amazing. I love that analogy. I mean, look, the lessons of Forrest Gump are universal. You know, the lessons of Forrest Gump are universal. And and I think Leonardo da Vinci said simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. And we're we're complex human beings. You know, and I think one of the reasons why I love what you've done and one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show is is really that you have taken very complex things and shown how to do them in a simplistic way. And the analogies that you use are profound in their simplicity. And I think that that, is, that speaks volumes because most people get so caught in their own complexity that they don't know how to move from the line at the nightclub where 99% of the people are standing into what other type of action could I take to actually get in. You know, and and that that's that's powerful. So I love I love this story. I really love this story because I think it showcases showcases in, <laughs> in many different ways. It actually showcases exactly what you talk about in this book. Thank you, I appreciate that. So so let's let's dive in a little bit more. So you you talked you kind of un, uh, uncovered or unlined uh, or or outlined this this theory around the third door. How did you start going about proving that it was true? Like, did you, in that moment within, within the prices, right? Did you realize that you were onto something or was it simply like, I want to use uh, a sort of outlandish methodology to get interviews with these people? Oh, not at all. I wanted to do the opposite. I wanted to just call them up and walk right into their office and be done in three months. <laughs> you know, that was my dream. My dream was to, you know, 
you know, go to BillGates.com, find the phone number, tell him, hey, I'm trying to write a book to help my generation and him say, come on in. That was the goal. To my surprise, he doesn't normally do interviews with 18-year-old college students. So <laughs> it, it was, dude, it was to me. So <laughs> even with the prices right, you know, I wasn't paying attention to what, you know, I'm not, I wasn't this like profound monk. I was an 18-year-old college freshman. And only in hindsight, after going on this seven-year journey and learning these lessons the hard way, can I look back and see that in many ways, some of the biggest lessons I learned along the journey existed right there on that day. But, you know, that's the beauty of hindsight. So the price is right was the beginning of the journey. And the third door analogy came to me about 70% into it. So maybe about five years into it. And the way all of these interviews came to be were, you know, I didn't have the analogy in my head at the time, but in hindsight, I can see there were very third door methods in and of themselves. So, you know, for Larry King, I had to chase him through a grocery store. For Tim Ferriss, I crouched in a bathroom at an event and jumped out when he was walking by. Um, with Steven Spielberg, you know, I had to sneak into a party and pretend to be the catering staff. So, you know, the book is full of all these like, you know, wild adventures along the way. And what's funny is when you look into Spielberg's history of how he launched his career, there's all these wild stories too that nobody talks about. You know, him sneaking onto the Universal Studios lot by going on a tour and jumping off the tram and hiding in the bathroom. You know, Bill Gates, the way he sold his first piece of software is a preposterous third door story. Lady Gaga, same thing here in New York City. So it's cool how you look at all these people who we, you know, some of us look up to, you know, you might have whoever your person is who you look up to, you know, Forbes magazine likes to just put them on this pedestal of, oh, Bill Gates, richest man on earth. They don't talk about the fact that he was like just hustling and, you know, his stories are equally as hilarious in his come up. And that to me was what I was so fascinated with. And these stories I've realized aren't about a particular age. It's not like third door stories only happen in your 20s. So it's not about an age. It's actually about a stage in life. You know, anyone, you know, you were telling me your story of how you, you know, changed the course of your career. And so it's not about an age. It's about a stage of when you're starting something new, when you're trying to get your foot in the door, no one wants to take your calls. No one will take your meetings. The door is being slammed in your face and you have this dream, this goal that you're trying to make happen, whether you're trying to do that in an existing job or you're trying to start your own thing. That's that stage that I'm trying to figure out how that works. Yeah. I mean, the, I think the cool thing is that it's so relevant for so many people, right? The, the building of momentum is the hardest part. You know, it's like just, just getting the ball rolling is, is so arduous you know, and so time consuming. And I think the, the interesting thing is that everybody's looking for this like linear path that they can just follow. And, and I think the trap, and I'm curious to get your insight on this, but I often think that the trap is that people buy into a, a, a program or a dogma that, that says, if you just do steps one through 20, you'll have the same success result that I do. And I think that the interesting thing about, you know, what you're talking about is like, look, here's what I've done. It's kind of crazy in, in, in some ways. And, and, 
like some of it, you know, like hiding in a bathroom waiting for Tim Ferriss, like that's nonsensical, but it, it worked, right? And and to really showcase in a in a very clear way how people can actually get out of their comfort zone, break free of the box, break free of like the linear path and the linear thinking, because that's often the thing that so many people are stuck on. Is they're, they're, they spend so much time trying to figure out the step by step of what's going to happen. So I'm curious from your perspective, like in the beginning of this, did you have a vision of how it was going to unfold or, or like, actually, that's a good question. <laughs> what was your initial vision of how it was going to unfold? Let's start there. Oh, it's completely wrong. You know, it was, <laughs> I, I thought this would be a three month summer project, like I said. And if someone would have told me that this would take seven years, and feel like 20. And if someone would have told me how beaten and broken I would find myself, I may never have started. But that's the upside of being naive. Yeah. And I think our society many times glorifies the experts. But what I've learned is that there's also a tremendous advantage of being the amateur, the up-and-comer. And... Everybody knows the benefits of being the expert, you know, you have connections, you have resources, but, you know, there is a really powerful advantage of being the amateur, which is that you don't know the way the system works, which means, you know, the expert is looking at solving a problem because by a lens of limitation, you know, she or he knows, you know, well, this works like this and that works like that. And they're trying to solve a problem by framing it through the limitations and the constructs when you're the amateur and you don't know what happens or how things work you're looking at it through a lens of possibility and that's probably what that's you know the most powerful frame to look at any situation and that's the only frame an amateur has which is why i think you know you look at whether it's Facebook or Microsoft, it many times was started by someone with no expertise in an industry, but with a desire to do something great. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like that's such a powerful point of reference. In, and it, last year, I heard um, Naveen Jain, who's the founder of Viome and a few other organizations, uh, speaking, and I connected with them after, and and we were chatting, and, and I, you know, I asked him like, "What's the what, what, in your opinion, is the easiest way to disrupt an industry? What is the easiest way to disrupt something that, that has been uh, going for a long time? And he said, know nothing about it. Just know nothing about it. And he said, that's the easiest way. If you want to disrupt healthcare, if you want to disrupt insurance, if you want to disrupt any industry, is just don't know anything about it and come in from a, from a fresh perspective. Because we are almost sort of, we almost create this rigidity in our thinking process of how we go about solving problems when we think that we know everything about an yeah. industry. So I love that, you know, beginner's mindset mentality. How important was that as you started to land interviews? Like, how did that serve you as you started? Who, who was your first big interview? So you, you did the prices right. You sell the sailboat, which is, it's hilarious that you that you <laughs> want a sailboat. That's amazing. You sell the sailboat, you get this funding, and you think to yourself, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to start interviewing people. What sparked that? Was it just the curiosity of, I want to know how people started their career? My belief very early on was really simple. I believe that 
if all these people came together, you know, not for press, not to promote anything, really just to share their best wisdom with the next generation, young people can do so much more. And I'm actually personally surprised that that belief, while the book has evolved so much, that belief hasn't. I, I would have thought it would, but it, it, it stayed the same. And in many ways, I'm realizing it actually goes even deeper. When I had started, I had thought that, you know, I was really intent on creating, you know, just the most practical guidebook for people where I would, you know, get Bill Gates' negotiation advice and Tim Ferriss' cold email templates and, you know, Steve Wozniak's happiness principle, you know, just get all of these things and put it all in this one resource. So, you know, creating the ultimate guidebook. And it happened, you know, I got all those things. But only at the end of the writing process, when I looked back, did I realize the soul of the book goes much deeper. And the soul of the book is really about possibility. What I've learned is that you can give someone all of the best tools and knowledge in the world and their life can still feel stuck. But if you change what someone believes is possible, they'll never be the same. And that's the most powerful thing you can give someone. I, I like that because I think it goes in tandem with where most people's conditioning, where they bump up against their conditioning. You know, I, I had Benjamin Hardy on the podcast and we were talking about how willpower doesn't work, which is, which is interesting. And I, and I loved his book and the research that he talked about, because I think for so long, we've been conditioned to think that if we just have enough willpower and motivation and inspiration, we can accomplish anything. And so people go about looking for how do I build up willpower? <laughs> you know, how do I build up uh, the motivation? And, and I think this perspective is a little bit different where we, we start to look at possibilities. So why is this shift in focusing in on possibilities, in, in your opinion, so powerful in producing, in producing the results that we're actually looking for? So there's this story that I came across during my research, and I don't remember where I read it or who it was from. But the story is about a teacher who is teaching for Teach for America in Baltimore. And, uh, you know, really rough neighborhood, really challenging school. Um, she was teaching, I think, maybe, you know, third or fourth graders. Just a hard situation for these kids. And one day she decides these kids need some inspiration. So she's like, all right, today instead of doing a math class, we're going to all draw pictures of our biggest dreams of what we want to be when we grew up. And she passed out sheets of paper and crayons to all these little kids. And all the kids, you know, grab the crayons and they start coloring and coloring. And there's this one boy in the back of the class who doesn't pick up a crayon. And, you know, minutes are passing by and his face is, you know, completely stone-faced. The teacher's worried, but she lets him be. And about halfway through the lesson, he grabs a crayon and starts coloring. And at the end, all the kids pass in their papers and the teacher, when they all leave, is looking through them and she sees that little boy drew a pizza delivery man. And she was concerned, so she called the mother that night and the mother wasn't surprised. She said, the only man in his life, the only male figure in his life who isn't on drugs or in jail is his uncle who delivers pizza. 
And what I took away from that story is that young people will always reach for the highest branch they see possible. No matter what, they will always reach for the highest branch they believe is possible. And it's up to whether it's schools or families or society at large to illuminate those branches. And only when those branches are illuminated will someone be able to go ahead. And that's in many ways the mission of the book. Nice. I think one of the challenges that I see a lot of people bumping up against when it comes to dreams, vision, success, you know, financial abundance, like all these different pieces. One of the challenges that I see a lot of people really striking up against when it comes specifically to possibilities is that they look at possibilities and they see what other people have accomplished, you know, and they'll, 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 you know, read the books or they'll listen to the interviews and they'll think to themselves, well, that's because they had X, Y, and Z, right? They had, they had the parents, they had the money, they grew up in this environment, they had the conditioning to think that that was possible. So how do we start to recondition people? How do we start to, to open up their, their, their thoughts, their mind a little bit to other possibilities than what they think is within their lane? Because I think in a lot of ways, our childhood, our teenage years, that conditioning often sets us up to, like you're saying, right, with the kid in the, in the, in the, the pizza met, the pizza delivery guy, it often sets us up to think, these are the possibilities that I'm capable of. And outside of that, there's a whole bunch of possibilities that everybody else can attain, but they're not for me. So how, how is it that we start to go about actually expanding our scope? of what's possible for us as individuals. To me, what's changed it for me is, you know, really understanding people's paths. And what I've learned is, you know, doing these seven years of research is that the human elements are what bridge that divide that you're talking about. You know, that conditioning, whatever you want to call it. You know, someone, let's say someone wants to be in music and they look at Quincy Jones and, you know, he's been nominated for more Grammy awards than any music producer in history. Everybody knows he, you know, produced the best selling album of all time, Thriller with Michael Jackson. He produced the greatest selling song of all time, We Are the World. You know, he created the Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Like that stuff is known. But the natural conditioning of someone who admires Quincy Jones is, all right, Quincy is from a different world. He had different access, you know, and that's the natural way to, I don't know why I'm sure you might even have better access to the science behind it. I have never really looked into the science and psychology of it. What I do know though, is how things change and it changes when you change your focus on the story. So the second you look at other aspects of Quincy's life that he grew up on the streets seeing dead bodies every day that he grew up as a kid eating rats for dinner all of your excuses of you know well he's different start to disappear and when happens naturally or even you know Quincy Jones is an extreme example. Maybe an even more relatable example is, let's say, someone like Tim Ferriss, you know, the best-selling author of the four-hour work week. Again, it's really easy to say, well, yeah, Tim is, you know, just super good at what he does. 
you know, he, to get his first job, had to send 32 emails to the CEO of a company, which reluctantly gave him like a low-level sales job. You know, for the four-hour work week, it got rejected by, you know, 25 different publishers. And even when his publisher put it out, they sort of thought it would be this like, you know, small little book. So when you start seeing those aspects of the story, it starts changing your perspective. And Maya Angelou says it best. She says, the greatest realization you can have that will change your life is that when you look at all of these people who created great art that you admire, who's written books that have changed your life, who have created companies that have changed the world, the second you realize that she was a human being and overcame all those things, and I'm a human being, and I can overcome all these things, and no one can be more human than me, and no one can be less. And if you can not just know that logically, but really internalize that, that's when things start to change. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, again, it's like that simplicity, like the, prof, like the profoundness of the simplicity, you know, is really, I think one of the big things that I see is that people get lost in their own conditioning and, and psychologically what happens is that they separate themselves from other people. So even when they do hear the other stories, they hear your story, they hear my story, they hear the story of Steve Jobs or Maya Angelou or Quincy Jones, they separate themselves and they stop seeing the similarities. Even, even the details are different, right? The hardships, the, the emotional impact of those hardships and those obstacles and those challenges, they separate their their connection to those other people. And I feel like where people start to shift the course of their life is where they start to connect their own journey and the impact and the emotionality of their own journey with the story of other people, you know? So what, what sort of proverbial doors do you feel like going through this process has opened up for you personally? How, how has it shifted your perception of possibilities and what you think is possible? Oh my goodness. Tremendously. You know, I, Oh, in so many ways, it's, it's, you know, it's hard to pin down one. And what I've realized is that I didn't even understand, you know, we're sort of, I'm here talking to, oh, and if you think this, and then you change what you believe. I'm really talking about myself here because yeah. I started out as that kid with, you know, Bill Gates on the highest pedestal possible to me. He had, he was the Holy grail. And why Bill Gates? Probably, you know, subconscious societal conditioning that he is, you know, the wealthiest man on earth. You know, if you look at him, right, he created a piece of technology that transformed the way the world operates. He created a company from scratch that became the biggest corporation on earth. And then at the top of his game, he stepped down to create the biggest philanthropic foundation on earth. I was like, if anybody has to know the secret, it's that guy. <laughs> and that's why I spent, you know, two years trying to track him down. And, you know, I had pictures of him, you know, above my bed on the car dashboard on the, above my bathroom sink. Like I was obsessed to get to Bill Gates and it took two years of, you know, me just getting beaten to make it happen. And when I finally made it happen, 
you know, it was an amazing interview and I learned incredible lessons. You know, I really was focusing, I was trying to figure out, you know, his sales and negotiating secrets. But one of the lessons I didn't expect to learn was, you know, I went in there with all these, you know, very, very well-researched sales negotiation questions. And the interview was wonderful. But at the very end, and you have to, you know, you can imagine it. Here's this 19-year-old, 20-year-old kid who spent two years dreaming of this moment. There's there's some tension in the room, <laughs> you know? It's not an easy, breezy conversation. It is, at least for, for me, it feels very high stakes. And at the very end, you know, Bill Gates' chief of staff is like, you have time for one final question. And I look down at my notepad and there's still dozens of unasked questions. And I have this moment to think of, you know, you have one final question for Bill Gates. What are you going to ask? And I look at all the questions written down on my notepad. And I'm just like, fuck it. And I throw my notepad to the side. And I look at him. And I'm like, what was like your funniest, most fun story, like hustle story from early on? And he sits back in his chair and looks up to the ceiling, almost as if he's watching a movie in his mind's eye. And this, you know, slow smile spreads across his face, which I hadn't seen him like that during the whole interview. And he starts like laughing to himself. And he starts telling me this hilarious story of his early, you know, hustle stories in Japan, you know, starting to start Microsoft. Just these hilarious stories with these Japanese executives and translation issues and really funny stuff. And we start cracking up, just laughing so much. And the more we're laughing, the more all the tension of that hour just disappears. And, you know, then we stand up to end the interview. And then we joke around more. We're laughing more about these Japanese executives. And, you know, we shake hands and he says goodbye. And a part of me regretted not starting the interview like that in the first place. Where realizing, and that taught me a huge lesson. That yes, he's the rich, you know, yes, he's the richest man on earth. Yes, he started the you know biggest company on earth. Yes to all those things. And he's a human being who likes to joke around about, you know, funny things. And I I had missed that. And from that point on, you know, there's a big shift in the journey after that Bill Gates interview, because from that point on, the interviews just have a completely different energy to them. And you know, you can, it's one thing to have that realization with, you know, let's say somebody else, another CEO who you admire, but isn't Bill Gates. And you might think, okay, well that, that CEO likes to joke, joke around and is friendly, but with Bill Gates, you gotta take it seriously. But when you get to Bill Gates and you realize that even he just wants to, you know, joke around and fuck around and laugh about old stories, you're like, oh, got it. And that is a powerful realization to have years old. I love it. I love it, man. Lessons, lessons from interviewing Bill Gates. <laughs> nothing, nothing like being 20 years old and, and interviewing Bill Gates to give you a swift, <laughs> swift kick. Okay, now, now I hear how preposterous it sounds coming from you. <laughs> I couldn't help it, man. I couldn't help it. No, I, I, I feel like the, the lesson is, is amazing because we, we do have this perspective, right? We have this perspective that we pedestal people and we treat them differently. 
And, you know, one of the things that I've really learned quickly in, in the industry that I'm in is that taking selfies with the influencers, with the Gary V's, with the Bill Gates of the world, it creates this differentiation, not a power differentiation, but it creates this like different perspective of how you view them, not even how they view you necessarily, but how you view them and how you interact with them and how you perceive them. And, and the, the crazy thing is, is that when we start to pedestal people like that, I feel like we oftentimes miss the teachings that they're actually trying to give, you know, like the greatest, I'm a big, uh, I mean, I'm a big Japanese nerd. And so like all the greatest senseis and masters, yeah. and they all talk about being the eternal student, you know, and even as a master being the eternal student and that some of the best teachers in the world, they're not even so much humble as they are constantly trying to eradicate the hierarchy. So how have, how have you, cause you've interviewed just amazing people, right? So you've interviewed, like, can you just prattle off a few, like you've got Bill Gates, Lady Gaga, Tim Ferriss. Yeah. So, you know, it's the whole spectrum because yeah. when I had, was thinking of that book, I was dreaming of reading what I really wanted was cause I didn't know what I wanted to do. I wanted everyone from every industry. So, you know, it's Bill Gates for business, music, Lady Gaga, science, Jane Goodall, poetry, Maya Angelou. Computer science, Steve Wozniak, broadcasting, Larry King, you know, Jessica Alba, Pitbull, Quincy Jones, Tim Ferriss. Like, it's been this really remarkable journey that was full of, of surprising lessons at every turn. Incredible. And, and did you notice that, that, like, what were some of the themes that sort of tie these people together? Like, is, is the eternal student part of that? Or what are some of the lessons that, because I would imagine after interviewing all these people that you started to see some commonalities, some red threads. And I'm curious to know what some of those commonalities are. So, you know, definitely the overarching mindset is definitely that third door mindset. But one of the things I didn't expect is that I had this assumption that all these people must have been fearless because what they did is crazy. You know, what a lot of them did was really, really crazy. And I'm one of like the most scared people you'll meet. Like I remember I had like a nightlight on until I was like 13. Like I was just that kid. Like I'm a scared kid. I was a scary kid, you know? And I had the, uh, I had the glow in the dark stars in the ceiling. Oh, I remember those, man. Yeah. That was the, that was big in the nineties. Didn't have to worry about a, a nightlight. You got the glow in the dark stars in the My ceiling. My cousins had them. I was so jealous. <laughs> I felt like you had to be like so rich to have. I remember when I was a kid, I was like, man. A little plastic. I actually had, I had NHL teams as well. There's a fun fact. I had the NHL really? teams and the Oilers and I had like the lampshade that glowed in the dark. Oh, with that's the, cool. The Edmonton Oilers on there. Anyway, Isn't it funny so. how like little kids like come up with these like preposterous stories with no Oh, you yeah. don't know if I was like, oh, you have to be rich to have the, the glow in the dark sea. Right. It's like two dollars <laughs> right. now. But right. like I was like, oh man, if only it's such a luxury. Right. I was like five years old. I'm like, oh it's man, like do you, rich did... cousins, so they they have it so good. Did you like, grow up with pogs? Did I grow up with pogs? I'm, I oh, I'm just making God. sure it's what like was the name of the big one? The slammers. Oh yeah, the slammers. And the and the expensive ones were like the razor slammers. They had yeah, like the spiked yeah, yeah. edges. That was like a childhood luxury. You know, yeah. and again. Like, it was that same cousin who had it. Right. So I was like, man, that cousin ah. is just crushing it. Glow in the dark ceiling, <laughs> pogs, 
We yeah. t- we totally got sidetracked. Yeah, but dude, that, that's my childhood, man. Oh man. Okay, so the so the red thread, the one thing that you that you didn't expect from from all these interviews. So definitely one of the things that was the most surprising commonality is I thought all these people were fearless, but during my research and during my interviews, I learned that every single one of these people was actually tremendously scared during the process. And it's not really talked about, but they were tremendously scared, not just in the beginning, but throughout their own journeys. You know, there's, you know, stories that are sort of hard to uncover, but there's definitely stories of Mark Zuckerberg when Facebook has, you know, 250,000 users and he's sitting there thinking like, is this a fad? Is this just going to burst tomorrow? You know, it's just amazing the amount of fear. You know, Bill Gates dropped out of Harvard to start working on Microsoft. And then Microsoft didn't take off the way he had hoped. So he went back to school. No one talks about that. But, you know, that was the experience. So what I've realized is that fearlessness isn't the goal of these people, which I thought it was, but it wasn't. Instead, it was really about courage. And the difference between fearlessness and courage is critical. You know, fearlessness is jumping off the cliff and not thinking about it. You know, that's idiotic in my opinion. But courage, on the other hand, is acknowledging your fear, analyzing the consequences, and then thoughtfully taking Mm. one step forward anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. It's really powerful. And so, so, I mean, I think that this is one of the biggest pieces that, that people sort of cognitively, I think that they, they, they know that sometimes, but again, I feel like the stories in the book that you've provided the interviews that you've done really showcase that from people, this is like a process of humanizing people. You know, humanizing the people that we usually, in our own way, dehumanize by putting them on such a high pedestal because we, we don't have access to them. So going back to the third door, because we, you know, we, we probably have to start wrapping this up, unfortunately. But going back to this concept of the third door, for the people that are, let's say, down the path, you know, they've already started a business, they've already started down their career path. How do they actually start to implement this on a day-to-day basis? How do they start to to look for these opportunities in in an area where they normally wouldn't look and identify? What does that look like? So it all depends, you know, what challenges you're facing. And, you know, one of my favorite things during this book launch has been, you know, not only doing talks, but during the Q&As, you sort of start hearing of all the challenges different people are facing, whether they're, you know, executives and corporations, or they have their own companies. It's interesting to me, all the different challenges people have and how similar they are. And one thing that, you know, I've gotten from a lot of people, whether they're, you know, heads of sales or, you know, brand new entrepreneurs is, you know, how you reach out to people that you're trying to get in contact with that you don't have a connection to. And one of the most practical things that I've learned came from Tim Ferriss when, you know, I had mentioned earlier, he got, he sent 32 emails to his, to the CEO of the company he wanted to work with. So I asked him, you know, what's your cold email template? 
when you're reaching out to people like this, whether it's VIPs or CEOs. And he actually gave me a cold email template that has worked unbelievably well. It helped me get mentors, interviews for the book, and people have been using it. And it's just been astonishing. And it goes like this. So if anybody wants to use it, it goes like this. Hi, so-and-so. I know you're really busy and you get a lot of emails, so this will only take 60 seconds to read. Boom, next paragraph. This is where you put one to two sentences max of who you are and you know what context you have that's relevant to the person who's reading it. The next paragraph, again, one to two sentences max of your very specific question for that person, something they can answer in a sentence. And the final line is the clincher. You go, I totally understand if you're too busy to reply. Even a one or two line response will completely make my day. And that has just worked wonders. And it's cool that you can be an executive and send that out. You can be a college student to send that out. And the responses are so high because it's just so thoughtful. And in many ways, sort of the opposite of the kind of cold emails people get, which is looking forward to your favorable response or, you know, these long essays of your life story. You know, this Tim Ferriss cold email template is the opposite of that. And it's worked so well. I love it. I love it. That's such a good resource for, for everybody on here, man. Um, okay, cool. That That is pretty great. So I, I have a couple more questions yeah, that, I, that I really was curious about. Were there any interviews, and obviously you don't have to give any names because that would be that would be interesting, um, probably not the best, but were there any interviews that you found yourself being really disappointed in? Because I think one of the things that that I would feel going through this process of interviewing all these people that are, you know, have celebrity status and that, you know, we idolize and put on pedestals. Was there any, any, any time where you went in with an expectation that you were really hyped up about and then came out from, from a disappointed space? And, and was there a lesson in there? You know, what's surprising is that there wasn't. And the reason it's surprising to me is that I assumed there had to be, even forget about disappointment, I assumed there had to be like, some of these people had to be, you know, assholes. Like I just assumed... Probability-wise, you know, at least you know fifty percent, even ten percent, had to be assholes. And every interview I did, they were just unbelievably generous. And I have a theory of why. It's not that every successful person on earth is generous and kind. My theory is that my book was this self-selection process, where you know I asked hundreds of people to be in the book. The only ones who said yes were the nice ones, you know. <laughs> All the people who were like, I don't have time for this. I'm busy said no. And all the people who are like, sure, there's an 18 year old kid who wants to, who's I've never heard of, but who wants to do something to help his generation. All right, I'll make an hour. Come on in. So the book was a self-selection process of just nice people who wanted to, you know, help contribute to this mission. I like that. Do you feel like setting up a filtration system like that is sometimes beneficial for us when we are looking for our third door? Like, is that part, it, can that be part of it? Ooh, I'm sure it could be if you're thoughtful about it. I wasn't doing it intentionally, but I think what happens just naturally, look, even if you're dating, right, there are natural filtration systems that you're creating that you don't even know. If let's say you're going out to nightclubs at three o'clock in the morning, 
you're sort of creating a filtration system of the kind of people you'll bump into. Not 100%. You know, it's possible you'll meet the Dalai Lama, but the chances the Dalai Lama is at a New York nightclub at 4 o'clock in the morning is very rare. So, you know, the kind of things that you're doing create a filtration system no matter whether you like it or not. So for me, I didn't know it, but me being an unknown kid writing a book to help my generation created a filtration system of people who are interested in things like that. You know, your focus on this podcast, I'm sure you didn't want to create a filtration system for the guests on your show, but you did naturally, you know? You know, you don't have that many, you know, mobsters on your show because your show isn't about like, you know, sacking people and, you know, I don't know, whatever, right? So there's just these natural things that end up happening. And, you know, I always think about, I go to this yoga studio in LA and New York called Moto Yoga, which I really love. And they're in Canada too, in Toronto and Montreal. And for years, I've always been like, why do they only give memberships to nice people? Like you're in the lobby, you're in the locker room, it's just the nicest people. And I'm like, this is, and they don't, they give memberships to whoever wants. But again, there's a natural filtration system of what kind of person wants to spend an hour doing hot yoga for the most part, not always, but for the most part, who are relatively happy or want to be relatively happy. And I think, and you know, it's a great question because I've never thought about this consciously. I've, I've noticed it in hindsight, but I've never thought of it proactively. How do you create the filtration systems you want for your life? Whether it's attracting a significant other or finding business partners, how are you doing that? Because the, the thing that struck me about this is that by executing this third door methodology, right? By going these, these routes of, of like these adventures that you found yourself on and, and the way in which you got, you know, uh, these influencers and celebrities and, you know, huge level entrepreneurs to inter interview with you was such a way that it's almost going, it's going to split the pile, right? Like you're going to get people that are going to react to it in a way of like, wow, good for you amazing hustle like if you if you pulled some shit like that for me and you jumped out of the bathroom you know like tim ferris style and you're like i want to interview you it'd be like i mean that's a little odd but absolutely like sure man like you got it if you're willing to wait in a bathroom and like jump out it's a little it's a little scary but like you got it and so i would imagine that that's either going to completely turn people off like it's polarizing Right. And, and I think that 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 part of it, that part of the third door concept, and I'm curious to get your insight in, in what other parts of the third door concept actually create that polarity, like what parts of it create that polarization where it it maybe automatically filters the people out who are the assholes versus the people who are in it for the right reasons and want to contribute and hear your mission and see the value and, and want to move towards that. When I had been writing the book, I sort of came to the realization before the book came out that the book would be very polarizing. And, you know, my publisher did not want to call it the third door because it's very polarizing. Some people hear it and they're like, I hate that concept. That's wrong. It's not how, you know, that's not how the world works. And some people are like, that's my fucking life story. You know, they're like die hard the second they hear it. 
And I came to the realization, you know, my publisher was shooting for a down the middle, you know, you know, you walk into a bookstore, every business book is named pretty much the same thing. And they wanted me to have a similar title. I came to the realization that I would rather have a book where, you know, let's say three out of 10 people hate it, just hate the concept. And then, you know, six out of 10 people, you know, they like it. It's nice, whatever. But one out of 10 are like, that is my life. I I wanted that kind of book as opposed to a book where 10 out of 10 people are like, oh, that's very nice and sort of walk away. And because to me, and again, there's no right or wrong way, but to me, I wanted a book that would speak to someone in the deepest, you know, parts of their soul. And even if it's that one out of 10, I, to me, you know, life is so short, no matter how long it is. And if you, and if I'm spending seven years working on something, my dream was it for the, to go deep and, you know, shake someone's core. And what's been amazing is that that's been happening to the point where I'll get these messages from people saying, like, I completely see the world differently now. And there's no greater, you know, words for an author to hear because, and I know that if, that that is in a big part a result of that decision to not only write about the third door mindset and take that track of the book, but really calling it that and sort of staking a flag down there where, you know, Sometimes being polarizing isn't the worst thing because, dude, if someone hates my book, congratulations. Like, there are other books that are for you. Like, I don't take it personally because the book is for people who, in many ways, already live and believe in the third door mindset. They just don't have a phrase or terminology for it. The people who love the third door are people who, somewhere inside of them, already believe that there's always a way. They're just looking for tangible evidence and case studies. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that stood out for me is it, the, the third door methodology, the third door concept in a way is almost like this convergence of relentless optimism and gut and intuition, you know, and an actual listening to those things. Because if you look at the storylines and the autobiographies of some of the people that you've interviewed, right, the Larry King's the Bill Gates, the Lady Gaga's, like they all faced incredible amounts of adversity and challenges. And oftentimes the thing that led them in the right direction, if you really look at their story and dissect it, is this sense of relentless optimism coupled with intuition. And funny enough, the times where they don't listen to that is often where their their story diverges down a, a wrong path, right? Like, like Bill Gates and his story where he's, you know, going down the path of Microsoft and then is like, oh, this isn't going so well. I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to go back to Harvard. And then realizes that he actually does want to keep going, right? The so, next semester goes back to Microsoft. Right, right. So it's it's really interesting because I feel like it's, you know, your book is in some ways like a lesson in cultivating and deepening those connections with ourselves, which are so important. You know, Einstein said that the intuitive mind is a sacred gift and the rational mind is a faithful servant, right? Mm-hmm. And that we need to honor the gift because we've created this society that that really honors the the servant, honors the rational mind over intuition. 
And I think it's really cool because one of the main essences that I pull from all the interviews in the book that you've, that you've written and some of the journey that you've gone on is this coming back of listening to intuition, listening to gut, you know, following your optimism and, and finding ways to make that work. So it, outside of that, if there's any, anything else that you would add into the essence of what this book is really about, what, w- what would you add into that? One of the themes of the book that I hadn't expected is family and the role that plays in someone's journey and life unfolding. I didn't, of course, plan it. I couldn't have foreseen it, but my dad got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer while I was working on the book. And because the book is written from a first-person narrative, um, it's sort of, it was impossible for me to, it not to affect the journey. And my dad passed away right as the book was coming to a close. And in many ways, my dad being diagnosed with cancer and seeing him pass away changed not only my perception of life and what this all means, but it also changed the way all of these lessons from the interview sort of came together. And there's something about seeing, you know, a parent pass away before your eyes that changes you forever. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine that, you know, having something like that happen. And did you integrate that into the book? Do you talk about that? Cause I, I noticed at the very end, you talk about the, you know, I think one of the, one of the chapters or one of the sub chapters is called sitting down with death and, did any of that shape your perspective or change your view on on the third door or add a certain layer or understanding of the third door that you hadn't considered before? Yeah, it, you know, one of the, so the hard thing about pancreatic cancer is that if you catch it early, you have a 10% chance of survival. That's if you catch it early. So... In many ways, it's a pretty concrete diagnosis. And while that's heartbreaking in and of itself, one of the things that happens because of it is, you know, some people talk about, you know, battling cancer. Pancreatic cancer, it's not much of a battle. It's more just trying to keep it at bay as long as possible. And even if you're trying to battle it, in hindsight, you realize it wasn't much of a battle. There were definitely points where we were fighting it, but when you look back, it wasn't much of a fight. But one of the things I didn't expect is that the 14 months of my dad's cancer journey made me sit down with death in an intimate way I never, ever would have imagined. Going to like the chemo center with him and, you know, walking him through and telling him, you know, he has three months left. Like those conversations and sort of helping guide my dad through his journey of accepting that his life was over gave me this intimate relationship with death that I never could have imagined and never could have anticipated. And what happens is that 
you know, the number one fear that humans have is of dying. Even if you, you know, if you read any, you know, which I know you do, like any Buddhist teachings, like that's original fear. Even loneliness is really a fear of dying. It's a fear of I'm alone, no one will help me, and I'll die. And as much as my dad's death, you know, completely broke me, it also made me not afraid of death anymore. I saw it so up close and personal. And what happens when you're not afraid of death is it's extremely liberating. You know, I can get a call from a doctor and that doctor can say, Alex, you have one week to live. And I'll be like, all good. And I, I know that sounds crazy, but that's how I feel, you know? And it's actually one of the, I hate using the word grateful when, you know, people are like, oh, you should always be grateful even for your hardships. Fuck that. You know, I'm not, maybe I'm not as evolved as those people. I'm not on that boat. So it's hard for me to use the word gratitude in those moments, but something that I'm grateful for that I've taken away from it is not being afraid of death anymore. Yeah. People are often, people often want to skip onto being grateful about something so that they can spiritually bypass actually processing through it. Bingo, bingo, bingo. Yep. And they skip through the grief and they skip through the shit and the anger and the frustration and the, you know, the whole thing, they skip through the whole thing. And they're just like, Oh, I'm just grateful for it. And it's like, where do you get to experience the fucking zest of Congratulations. life? You know? Just got it. That's it. That's it, man. So many people, when, you know, a parent passes, they're like, Oh, I'm just grateful for the experiences we had. Well, that can coexist with grief. Yeah, you can still um, celebrate them and but, be grieving. Right, and I think I, I, you nailed it, man. People hide behind sometimes gratitude as a way of suppressing the the suffering that comes in the human condition. Yeah, such a powerful lesson, man. Well, listen, this has been a incredible conversation, and I really enjoyed this, and really enjoyed getting the chance to sit down with you and I could have done this for hours and had a, you know, the Joe Rogan two hour special and just heard about every single interview that you did and pulled it out. But I want to leave pieces for people, you know, to dive into this book because I think that it's, it's a really, uh, really important conversation and it's so much bigger than just business. You know, it's so much bigger than, than, than success, than, you know, the, 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 path that people walk you know it's really this is this is like a life lesson (laughs) in in so many ways so i appreciate you being on the show thank you so much for joining me thank you yeah and uh for everyone out there definitely uh check out the book we've got the link in the show notes uh book again is called the third door we've talked about it a, a few times and definitely check out Alex, you know, go, go check out his website. We're going to have a link in the show notes for that as well, for people to check out, uh, anything up and coming that you want people to know about? I think you nailed it, man. <laughs> you know, my, my biggest dream, the reason I spent seven years working on this is for the book to be in people's hands. So if they get it by listening to this podcast, like definitely let me know on social so I could say thank you. And yes. I, I couldn't be more grateful, man. Thank you. Yeah. So, so go check it out and uh, don't forget to man it forward again, share this podcast with just one person. 
Uh, we don't do a lot of traditional marketing, as you know, so you and your support and your help goes a long way to getting us into the ears and onto the phones of other people. Don't forget to clip, click subscribe, whatever platform you're on. We're on Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, YouTube, you name it. Uh, so check us out on your favorite platform. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join us next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. Mm-hmm.